welcome back, Thoughtvolutionists. I'm your host, Stéphane Dubier, and today is going to be emotional. There is no sugarcoating it. This episode is about something we're all bound to face at some point in our lives, and that is the loss of a loved one. I'm sure for some of you that topic hits home. In my own case, it sure does. I lost both of my grandfathers to cancer, as well as my dear aunt Beata. It still shakes me up sometimes when I think about it, because to this day there are moments when I wish I could pick up the phone or just spend a little bit of time with them. Losing anybody you care about changes you. We all deal with loss and the associated grief in our very own ways. And despite grief touching so many lives every single day, it still seems like it is somewhat of a taboo topic to even discuss, let alone normalize. Instead, after some initial sympathy and words of condolences, we tend to tell people to just move on, to get over it, and that life needs to continue. We project our own expectations onto others in so many ways, even when they are at their most vulnerable. Do we really think we get to decide what somebody else's grieving process should look like? Do we think it's helpful to make our fellow human beings feel even more alone during what must be the loneliest time of their lives? A time defined and perhaps even consumed by loss and grief. My guest today is Suzanne. She's 55, lives in Vancouver, and is a divorced mother of two. Well, she was. Her son, Ben, will forever be 22 years old because he took his last breath in September of 2020. There really are no layers or levels to loss because the pain is very much the same. However, losing a child must seem like a particularly difficult reality to come to terms with. Ben is gone, and yet he continues to teach Suzanne valuable lessons about life and death every single day. Suzanne wants to have open conversations about grief so that grievers no longer feel so alone. She also wants to educate people on how we can all support each other when one of us is confronted with the devastating truth and pain of losing a loved one. One of the things that Suzanne's truly proud of is that she's learned through all of this that she's capable of accepting the ups, downs, and sideways of deep grief. It helped her become a grief educator, coach, and speaker. I'm honored and humbled to talk to Suzanne about what it's like when a giant part of your heart is torn away by the loss of a loved one. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about suicide, depression, mental health, grief, loss, and death. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hi, Suzanne. I'm so glad we get to have this conversation today. I know it took a little bit of time to prepare, dealing with two different time zones and so on and so forth. We are recording this episode on a Saturday, a beautiful one here in South Carolina. Where are you now and what do you have planned for this weekend? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. And it's actually a beautiful day here too, which at this time of year is not uh, given. We're often in the rain and the darkness at this time of year, but it's a beautiful day today. Plans for the weekend, this conversation with you, my daughter and I are going to do some shopping afterwards and then yeah, a relaxing day tomorrow with some meetings with power partners and some relaxed time. So it's a good weekend. 
I would like to go back in time with you to get an idea of what life must have been like for you growing up. Can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. I am the middle child of three. I have two brothers, one older, one younger. I'm the only adopted child. So it was a really interesting dynamic because they're both natural children of our parents and I'm adopted. And we had a great childhood. My dad was a lawyer and sort of social justice activist. He fought for all kinds of things in Canada, uh, all the way to the Supreme Court. So had some important casework that changed the landscape significantly. And really his office, because he wanted it to be accessible to everyone. So he ran a low cost legal clinic and it was kind of weirdly our family business. So in the way of you think of like a family business grocery store or a family business restaurant where the kids come and help, like I was his receptionist at one of his offices on the weekends when I was 12. <laughs> it was a very family business. My mom was his usual receptionist and we would do filing for him and he would bring stuff home for us to you know, update the case books. I remember spending ages at the dining room table, taking out the old pages, putting in the new pages and all of those kinds of things. We did lots of things together. We were all involved in theater and music and I danced. And so we did lots of performing things together in various combinations. I've performed with everyone in my family, except my mom, who was our biggest fan, but didn't perform. And it was really wonderful. Yeah, it was great. And then I've since then found my birth mother. And hilariously, because I always pined my entire life for a sister, I actually have two more brothers. <laughs> so I now have four brothers who are all wonderful, great parts of my life. That is super interesting. I actually gave my son 23andMe for Christmas two years ago, and we ended up locating his half-sister. And they have since made a connection, and it's just it's beautiful to see. Now, for you, having been, been adopted into a great family, obviously, was it awkward meeting your biological mom? Were there certain expectations? What was that? Like, have you met in person yet? and Or how was that initial contact for the two of you? So it's interesting. My story is very similar. I ended up finding one of my brothers, one of my half-brothers through Ancestry. So very similar process which my kids actually encouraged me to do. I had, you know, vacillated. I'd been curious my entire life about what my birth family might be like. And if there was people out there that looked like me and hilariously, my mom and I look, my birth mom and I look very much alike. There's definitely a strong family resemblance, which goes down to my kids. I'm so grateful though. There wasn't really a lot of awkwardness and I give, I credit that to my raising parents. So when I was really little, I used to say I was lucky because I had two moms. I had a birthing, a burning mom and a raising mom. So I, they did such a brilliant job. I've always known I was adopted. I don't remember them sitting me down to tell me. So it just was a part of who I was. It was not a big issue, but it just was a part of me. And their explanation, which I think is so beautiful of why my mother might have given me up always was that she would have made the most difficult decision of her entire life in order to give me a life that was better than what she thought she could give me. And that it was the ultimate act of love. So because that was what I carried as my story, there wasn't any awkwardness meeting my birth mother because I didn't have any resentment towards her. So that was a really beautiful gift that ultimately my parents gave to both of us because she had, of course, spent her life in the interim because I was over 50 when we discovered each other, 52. So she'd spent all that time wondering 
you know, what my story had been. And so she was so grateful that that had been my story. And I didn't come with any resentment towards her. I didn't carry any sort of baggage or feeling of abandonment. Like the story always was, you know, without question that this was a gift of love and the hardest thing she had ever done in her life. So that was a really amazing gift from them that it was just part of who I was, was I was adopted and it was no big deal. And that it w- it had happened because of love. I know that our conversation today will be a lot about death, loss, grief, but also life and purpose and how it may impact each and every one of us. I wonder what your dreams and goals were for your own life as you were growing up. What did you expect, hope, and think your life would turn out to be? So I, it's interesting, I think because of the experience with my dad being such an advocate for people and for us being, we just were raised to know that we were supposed to make a difference. We were supposed to help people. We were all supposed to help each other. So I always had a sense as a kid that I wanted to do something that would help people. For a long time, I wanted to be a lawyer like my dad. And then when I was in university and counted how many more years of university I needed to get there, I decided not to do that. But I always knew I wanted to do something that would help. And it's interesting when I think about it, how I can frame really at this point, you know, in my mid fifties, I've had a lot of different jobs and all of them in some kind of way were helping jobs. So that was something that was really instilled in us, I think, as kids, that part of our responsibility was to take care of people who needed it for whatever reason. And I really, you know, I've always loved performing. So I knew that would be a part of what I did. And I just do that for fun and haven't done it now for years for various, various reasons. For like a decade, the last show I did was with my daughter before she left for university. So that's a long time ago now. But that sense of like wanting to help people, wanting to make a difference, wanting to do something that would have an impact was really the way that we were raised, that like that was something you were supposed to do. That was just, we were in a position to be able to do it. And so we should. A beautiful mindset, really. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about something very traumatic that not only turned your life upside down, but also inspired you to become a grief educator, coach and speaker, once again, helping others. But before this event, the death of your son, Ben, changed everything. Were there other instances when death had to be addressed, perhaps the loss of a grandma or somebody else? And if so, how did you deal with it back then? So I had, you know, in the kind of normal course of things, had three of my grandparents die, you know, as elderly, you know, they'd lived long, full lives. So as difficult as that is, it was not unexpected in many ways. It was, you know, the normal kind of normal course of events. And then actually the year that Ben was born, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. So that was much too early of a loss. I was in my thirties and had literally an infant. So Ben was born in April and my dad died that September. So I had an infant and a just turned four-year-old. My daughter turned four um, the day after my dad died. Actually, they shared birthdays and they always celebrated together and he died on the day in between their birthdays. So that was really my first experience of a death that felt wrong because he was far too young. I wasn't ready. You know, my kids lost their grandpa. At that point, he was their only grandpa. So that was really my first experience with someone really close to me that felt like it didn't make a lot of sense. The beauty out of that loss was that 
my dad was diagnosed with cancer in June and died in September. So we were blessed with a very short illness because up until then he was healthy and, you know, just living a normal life. And what that gave us was the opportunity so that nothing was left unsaid, right? So we could spend time together. He chose to be at home. So he didn't go into um, hospice. He did palliative care at the hospital and then he wanted to be at home. So it was really beautiful. People could come and visit. We had a, when he got diagnosed, we had a huge, you know, what we called a retirement party, but everybody knew what was happening. So we had this huge, like hundreds of people <laughs> event, you know, to celebrate his retirement, even though it was a forced retirement. So it was really beautiful in that people got to say what they had to say. They got to come and, you know, pay tribute and homage and all of the things for all of the differences he had made for people, which was really beautiful for us as a family to see. And beautiful to experience that version of losing someone where there there isn't anything left unsaid. You've been able to clear up everything. My dad and I were really close and my daughter was really close with him. She'd spent quite a bit of time at her grandparents when I was at work. So she was really close to him. So they'd had a really beautiful relationship. The issue that time that was the biggest challenge actually was getting support for her. So because she was so young, people kept trying to tell me that she couldn't be grieving. They're like, well, she's only four, like she can't be grieving. And I'm like, okay, but she is. So given that she is, you know, what supports do you have available? Well, nothing. There was nothing for kids that I could find. And luckily when my dad had been in palliative care at the hospital, he'd become friends with the music therapist there because we're such a musical family. So she would come and play and we would all sing. And I knew she had a kids group. So I ended up reaching out to her and saying, okay, you know us and you understand, you know, she understood the relationship with my daughter and her grandpa. And so she made space for Kathleen, even though she was too young, technically for the group, she was like, oh, of course she can come. Yes. Bring her over. So it was amazing for me to find help for her. That wasn't me because I'm grieving. I'm trying to support my mom who's lost her life partner I'm trying to support my kids, you know, one who's an infant and doesn't know anything except that they're hungry and tired and (laughs) need a diaper change, right, at four months. So it was really, really helpful to find someone for her where she could go and be around other kids, too, that, that understood grief and knew what was happening. And some had lost parents, some had lost siblings. So that was really beautiful to have, you know, really an amazingly positive death, if that makes any sense to people, as devastating as it was to lose my dad when I was that young and he was that young, it really, if that had to happen, it was the best possible scenario because, you know, he didn't suffer for a long time, but we got that window of being able to say goodbye and say everything we had to say, share how much we loved each other. And then my mom died about 13, I guess, years later when I was in my 40s. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, she was also too young. (laughs) Uh, She was about 73. So older, but still, you know, from my perspective, it's always going to be too young. And that death was different in that it was sudden. She had what they think were a series of mini strokes. And by the time I got to her in the hospital, she was in a medically induced coma that she never woke up from. So that was different in that you know, we had a much more complicated relationship as I think mothers and daughters tend to do as opposed to mothers and fathers. And I, and I wish many times that we had had that opportunity to say all the things. And at the same time, I know I am a hundred percent sure that she knows how much I loved her and I know how much she loved me. So there's lots of comfort there and there's comfort in knowing that she didn't suffer 
right? The day before she got sick, she'd been out shopping with my brother for Christmas things with my older brother and, you know, her shopping and Christmas were like two of her favorite things. So really, if that had to be a last day, it was a pretty perfect one. And then we just needed to navigate the healthcare system and trying to figure out what they could do for her, if anything, which ultimately ended up that they couldn't do anything for her. So that was a different experience. And the complexity that time, of course, was that, you know, my kids are a little bit older at this point. They've had a really great relationship with their grandma. And, you know, my daughter lived across the country going to school. So she didn't get to be here for a lot of it. She kind of had to go back and forth. So that was really complicated just because of, you know, the circumstances and, you know, my younger brother lived out of town at the time. So there was a lot of logistical figuring to do much different than when my dad died and we were all kind of able to be at the family home. So, so I'm grateful that before Ben died, I had had those two experiences where they were, you know, not out of order, which is a different complexity when you lose a child, but they were people very close to me. And obviously I've had other losses of, you know, colleagues and friends, other relatives, but those ones strike really close to home for obvious reasons. And the other thing that's interesting, when my dad died, his mom was still alive. So my grandma outlived her son. So it was interesting thinking about the conversations I had with her when he died. And of course he died in his sixties. So she was in her eighties. She lived to be over a hundred, but she, at that point was like, this makes no sense. Like I have lived my whole full life and he hasn't yet. So it's interesting to look back on some of those conversations as I navigate the loss of my child. Before we get into the loss of your child, Ben, did that experience with your dad and this realization that you left nothing unsaid impact how you continue to live past that point to maybe say, I love you one too many times rather than not saying it often enough to maybe hug more, to maybe try to make the moments a little bit more meaningful? Yeah, I absolutely think it did. You know, there was so much peace in knowing that, you know, we'd had that opportunity to just, you know, have ridiculous conversations and have meaningful conversations and be really sure that our relationship was clean, you know, that we had dealt with any conflicts and and really been very clear about how much we cared about each other and how important we were to each other and how much we appreciated each other. I think we fall down sometimes on expressing our appreciation for people. So I absolutely think that had an ongoing impact. And I 100% aim to be that person that says, I love you too many times <laughs> because you just never know. You never know what's coming. And even knowing that I ended up with, you know, kind of the biggest whammy of you never know what's coming. So I'm, I'm, it's another reason I'm grateful for that experience. Right. And, and I feel so much empathy for people who don't get that opportunity and are left kind of carrying, you know, worries and fears about, you know, what that person might have thought or where they had left it. And it's interesting. I think of it often, I think often about how that impacted the way that I raised my kids, because I also realized that if you didn't know what was coming, you needed to be really clear about what was important. So for me, a lot of the battles that kids and parents have around like clean rooms and tidying up and stuff like that, that's ultimately not important at all. I really chose not to have, you know, Ben was the messier of the two for sure. Uh, when he was a kid and the, the rule for him was there had to be a path from the door to the bed so that the fireman could get to him if there was a fire. 
Now, of course, that wasn't the reason. The reason was so that I didn't step on little pointy things when I was going to hug, hug him goodnight. But that was the reason that I gave him was, you know, the firemen need to be able to get to you. So there needs to be a path. And sometimes there would literally be like you could see that he had kept a path and the rest of the room would be chaos because he just had such a quick moving mind and so many interests that there was no way he could, you know, keep them all on a shelf put away. But I, I'm I'm often struck by that when I see parents interacting with their kids and having fights over things that, you know, five years from now, nobody will care about. You know, I'm happy to say both my kids grew up into adults that are fairly tidy and able to keep clean and all the things. So it didn't matter that I didn't hound them as kids about their rooms being tidy or, you know, all those things. We get so caught up, I think, especially when we're parenting in things that just don't matter. And they end up being these big battle points and these big stressors in our relationships between us. And I just, I never saw the sense in that. And I, and I think that absolutely was part of having been through that experience with my dad. I think I'm going to take that tidying the room up thing home with me <laughs> as I, as I have those ongoing conversations with my kid. But um, <laughs> now we spoke about the, that really shouldn't happen moment that ended up happening in September of 2020. But before we talk about what actually happened to Ben, can you describe your life on that day in September of 2020 before you knew that your son, your sweet baby Ben, at only 22 years was in fact gone? What was that day like? Did you have any premonitions? Was there something in the air that felt like you know, something bad was going to happen? Or what was that day like before you found out? So that day, my daughter and I were away. We had gone away for the weekend up to Whistler. So relatively close to home, but a lovely escape and a place we'd been many, many times as a family. Ben had decided not to come with us that weekend. He had just been away with friends the week before. And he, it's funny, if you can remember back to that point in COVID, here, anyway, we'd had quite a few restrictions lessened over the summer because we could all gather outside and we were being encouraged to reconnect with each other and gather outside. And we could see with the fall coming and the numbers going back up where we are that those restrictions were going to start to come back. And so for my daughter and I, we could really see that, you know, very soon our apartment was going to again be our theater and our restaurant and our gym and our, you know, our everything. <laughs> And we knew we wanted one last kind of getaway before that happened. For Ben, he really loved being at home. And that was his comfort spot. He had his room all set up the way he wanted. It was his, you know, his cave where he was comfortable and could escape from the issues of the world. And so he chose to not come with us. That was not a warning sign of any sort. Made perfect sense to me that he was like, no, I'm just want to stay home. And we were like, get me out of home. That was very fitting for our personalities. So Kathleen and I had had a great day. We'd wandered the village. We'd been swimming. We'd been to the place that we stay up there has a little movie theater. We'd been to a movie and just had a really good day. We'd had a really great conversation with Ben the night before we left the Thursday. And we'd all talked about Kathleen's birthday. So Ben died September 26th and her birthday is the 30th. So we were going to celebrate her birthday when we got back and we had talked about where we were going to get the food from and what movie we were going to watch. And we had it all kind of figured out. And we'd had a really great conversation about, you know, why he wasn't coming and if I was mad at him and all of that stuff, because we still carry that, you know, sense of wanting to please others. And yeah, then we went to bed. 
you go to bed with your world, with the world in order, and then you wake up and nothing is the way it was before. Can you describe what happened? Yes. We had um, gone to bed. As far as we knew, everything was fine. And my phone rang at about three in the morning from a number I didn't recognize. So as you do, right, uh, most of us don't answer the phone. If it's a number that doesn't come up in our context, we don't know who it is, especially in the middle of the night. So I, you know, ignored the call and turned back over. And it rang again a few minutes later. And as you do in sort of the ridiculousness of these kind of situations, I picked it up and I said something along the lines of, you know, don't you understand it's three in the morning where I am? And, you know, assuming it was some kind of crank call or, you know, terrible bot phoning, you know, it's three in the morning where I am. Don't you understand? You shouldn't be calling people at three in the morning. This is ridiculous. You need to stop calling me. And that was the police calling to notify me that Ben had died. So, you know, there is no good way to notify someone. I think having to do it over the phone, I'm sure was as difficult for them as it was for me. And really they did the best job that they could in horrifying circumstances. So yeah, I finished the phone call and, you know, went across the, you know, the living room of the place we were staying to go wake up Kathleen and tell her that Ben had died. And you know, we realized that we should probably phone and wake the kid's dad. So we phoned him and woke him up to let him know. And then we had to get home. So we sort of haphazardly, I'm sure, <laughs> in a blur and a fog, threw all our things into our bags and got ready to go. And we were staying at a timeshare. And there's a whole procedure when you leave somewhere like that, where you're supposed to take out the garbage and put the dishwasher on and clean certain things. And and I phoned the front desk and said, can you please tell housekeeping that we've had a family emergency and we're just leaving? So none of the things we're supposed to do are done and we're going and we're checking out right now. We're leaving and going home. And we drove home and luckily it was the middle of the night, you know, four in the morning. I think we got home about 530. So there weren't a lot of other cars on the road, which is great. <laughs> And it's a road I've driven many times. It's a route I've driven many times. So it didn't feel unsafe. And really, we didn't have a choice. You know, there does come a point when these kind of things happen where you just have to do what you have to do. So we had to get home. We couldn't stay where we were. And so we needed to go home. One of Ben's friends met us at the apartment. He sweetly didn't want us to come home to an empty apartment thinking, you know, because our brains think we're coming home to Ben who still lived with me. So he came and met us at the apartment, which was beautiful. And we were able to, you know, sob together and try and start to make sense of what needed to happen next and how we were going to tell people and, you know, all of that. He was amazing. And he's continued to be an amazing uh, friend now to me. And then, yeah, we, you know, he left and we just, you know, I think we went back to sleep for a little bit or tried to get a little bit more sleep. Cause of course, at that point we'd had hardly any sleep at all, went back to sleep. And then, you know, you wake up again and, and you have to figure out what to do and figure out how to, I mean, telling people was the first thing and that was horrible. Telling people is just horrible. So what happened to Ben? You told me that he committed suicide. Did he leave letters did he did he think about how his suicide may affect you did he leave anything behind for y'all to explain 
why he did what he did? So I'm just going to switch hats for one moment and put my grief educator hat on, and then I will switch back to my grieving mom hat and just talk a little bit about languaging. We're really working hard to change the language around people who die by suicide and to take that word commit out of the equation. So people commit crimes and suicide is not a crime. It's something that happens from an illness of the brain. So the the languaging that's being encouraged and that we want to kind of share with people is that that we say that they died by suicide, the same way you die by cancer, you die by heart disease. I choose to say that he died of depression and anxiety because I think the interesting thing about suicide is that we don't name the underlying disease, which we do in every other death, right? Almost every death is of organ failure, but we don't call it that. We name it by the thing that caused the organ failure. So Ben died of depression and anxiety, and he 100% thought about how it would impact us. He had a very elaborate plan, which didn't come to fruition, but absolutely took, took the impact that it would have on us into consideration. He Because of the way he had constructed that plan, he didn't leave a note for us. He had hoped that we would just think he had died in his sleep, which of course is not the workings of a mind that can make sense because 22-year-olds don't die in their sleep. Uh, as a matter of course. So for that reason, he didn't leave a note for us. He did leave a note for a number of his friends, which they have happily shared with us. So we have a bit of a sense of, you know, what was going on for him and, you know, had an opportunity kind of vicariously to know that he absolutely knew how much everyone loved him. You know, if, if we could love people to health, we would all be healthy, right? That's not, unfortunately not how it works. So yeah, it's interesting because I really struggled in those early days with the fact that he hadn't left, like because he was trying to protect us, we didn't get left anything. Whereas his friends who he felt less like he wanted to protect ended up with a note or ended up with a little care package of things that he knew they would love to have of his. So that was really hard in the early days to kind of wrap my head around. And it totally makes sense. Right. When you think from his perspective of not wanting us to be burdened, which, of course, none of this really logically makes sense. Right. Because this is a decision making process being done by a brain that's ill. So it, when, you know, the logic holes, you could drive a truck through. But he didn't want us to be burdened by that. And and so had kind of made all these elaborate arrangements for that to not be the case. Yeah. Which couldn't come to fruition because that's not how the world works. Right. I love what you said about the language. And that's, I think that's something where we are all still learning a lot. Oftentimes we use words, not really thinking about how they come across and how they might affect somebody. Thank you for that. And thank you for your work that you are doing to, to normalize grief. And we'll, we'll go into that into a little more detail a little bit later on. When all of this happened, on top of the grief that you had to deal with during that moment, was there self-blame or were there moments of questioning whether you could have done anything to prevent this from happening? What's interesting for me is that I didn't feel that. I didn't feel self-blame. I didn't feel guilt. I didn't feel like there was something that I could have done. You know, Ben had uh, suffered with mental illness for a long, long time. And so we had done all kinds of things to help him. And I really, you know, feel so grateful that I know, like with every fiber of my being, I did absolutely everything that I could. And what's interesting about that is, 
you know, it, there's been so many things lately and, I, you know, things come across my feed because a lot of my feeds are about grief and loss and death by suicide. And, and recently I've seen a number of things where it's like, here's like the 10 signs to watch for. And I was talking about that with one of Ben's friends just a few days ago and how mad those things make me for a couple of reasons. And I first want to say, I know that for some people, they're probably a lifeline and you see one of those things or two or three of them and you, and you can reach out to your person and you can help them. And I'm, and so I'm grateful for those things and they make me angry because for Ben, he did not check any of those boxes that particular weekend, not one of them. So there are other times in his struggle with mental illness where he had for sure. And we'd had conversations and we'd gotten acute care or he'd gone to hospital or we'd got made an appointment and shifted medications, whatever it was that we needed to do to help him as you would with any other kind of illness. But that particular weekend, there really were no warning signs. There was nothing. We had a very normal conversation, a nice one, but like nothing that felt like he was, you know, saying goodbye. He hadn't withdrawn from his friends. He, you know, if you think of the kind of the things that show up on those what to watch for lists, he hadn't withdrawn. He was sleeping as he normally does. His sleep patterns were all wonky his entire life. So that was not any kind of warning sign. He's a night owl and I'm a, or, or an early bird. And actually uh, during COVID, as so many people did, we were doing puzzles. And we had a puzzle just set up on the dining room table. And one of the things that was so fun for me was getting up in the morning and seeing what puzzles pieces he had put in while we had been asleep because he just, you know, he was not awake necessarily at the same times as we were because he liked being up late at night and I like being up early in the morning. He was eating as normally as ever. Often eating is one of the things on those lists. You know, there really was nothing on those lists that that was any kind of warning for us at all. The thing that's interesting that I realized afterwards is how much of the way that we lived our life was kind of geared to help him. So, you know, we we all love to travel. So we would always on our way home from a trip, be planning the next one. Like, where should we go next? And what should we do? And what do we love there? Or what's that new place? Or trips big and small. It didn't always have to be a big exotic trip. Sometimes it was just to go up to Whistler or to go to the interior, you know, go a couple hours away from home. So we always had trips on the list. That's something we were planning for. We always, we loved to go to theater and concerts and comics and all that kind of stuff, comedians. And we always had tickets for things. Ben and I had season tickets for the opera. You know, we always had things on kind of on the books to look forward to. And of course, with COVID, all of that had disappeared. So I can really see that a lot of the things for Ben that kind of tethered him here had fallen apart. And at the same time, you know, if you remember back to what the world looked like that summer, there were global wildfires, like the world was literally on fire. We had all witnessed the murder of George Floyd. And then there was so much protesting after that, which Ben was really active in the protests up here. And the backlash against those protests was, you know, troublesome for many. And, you know, we watched ourselves fracturing. We watched injustice. We watched, you know, really the world as we knew it falling apart. And I think that weighed really heavily on Ben. I, I don't think I know that that weighed really heavily on Ben. I think, you know, when you're someone who's been othered, which Ben was, he was wildly gifted, like 99th percentile gifted. He was gay. 
and he had mental illness <laughs> and he was super creative. You know, there were a lot of ways in the world that he had been othered. And I think when you're someone who's experienced that yourself, often you feel it much more deeply when you see others experiencing that. So when he's watching other people's rights being eroded and, and, and his rights being eroded on the horizon, right. As a gay man. And, you know, we've watched that continue since his death, you know, he, he saw all of that on a global scale and on a really big scale in a way that I think Uh, Like I'm a bright, typical person, but my brain is not gifted. A gifted brain just operates in a different way and makes connections in a different way and inferences, inferences in a different way. And I think for him, all of that weighed really heavily, right? We're watching the environment fall apart. We're watching our social structures fall apart in a way that's violent and scary. And, you know, many of them need to fall apart and be rebuilt, but we'd like that to happen in a more peaceful way, which of course is not the way of humanity. But I think all of that weighed on him. So I realize that's a very long answer to your question, but no, I I know I did everything I could. And, and I was gifted the opportunity through a whole nother um, circumstance to talk to the psychologist that we worked with with Ben when he was preteen and into his early teen years. And I talked to her about it too. And I said, like, really, like, I I don't feel guilty. I don't feel like, oh, if only I had, like, I really feel like I did everything I could. And she said to me, oh, absolutely. You should feel that. Like you did everything you could. And, you know, the same way that we can't cure someone's cancer, even though we want to, and we can't cure their, you know, heart disease, even though we really want to, I couldn't cure his mental illness, even though I really wanted to. So with Ben gone, how did you deal with that initial deep grief that you experienced? And do people grieve differently? How is it within a family? I mean, you had your daughter grieving, you had yourself grieving. People often refer to the five stages of grief. Is that an actual thing? What was your experience? What I would say, I just want to address the five stages model first. Because it gets a lot of grief, (laughs) literally a lot of hate on that five stages model. And what I would say about it is if you think that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler were suggesting that that five stages model was anything linear, that you would go through one stage at a time, you didn't read the introduction, which says exactly the opposite of that. So what they tried to do with the five stages was identify five, I I choose to kind of call it phases of grief. And I don't necessarily identify with the way that they've broken it down, though it's very helpful for many. What they identified is five things that in all likelihood will happen in some combination at some point in your grief journey. So if you look at it that way, and you think about anger and acceptance, and you know, I can't think of the five off my head because I don't live in that paradigm. But if you think about it that way, that they are likely to happen at some point in some combination on your grief journey, they 100% are. What I will say about those early, those most early acute days. So when you're in acute grief and you're really in survival mode, for me, it was exactly that. I was in survival mode. The brain fog is intense. Your mental capacities are not anything you've experienced before. They are wildly diminished. And the best way I can explain it is to say that I had this vision in those very early days 
of my life and myself as big chunky puzzle pieces. So if you think of those like big 3D chunky puzzle pieces, like chunky wooden puzzle pieces, I could see them, the the pieces of my life and the pieces of myself in those chunky puzzle pieces on the floor all around my feet. And I couldn't pick any of them up because my arms were already full of pieces that I couldn't let go. But I didn't have any space to hold anymore. And I didn't know how to put them back together into a person and a life. So you're holding everything you can. The rest of your life and yourself is in pieces on the floor. And you don't know how to pick them up. And you don't know how to put them together. We realized very early on that we needed, you know, kind of some rules (laughs) for how we were going to do this. So my daughter and I uh, lived together at the time. We still do. And we decided that what was going to work for us was we could do one hard thing a day, right? That brilliant Glennon Doyle, we can do hard things became one of our mantras. We can do hard things. You know, we said it over and over. We found that we could only do one hard thing a day. And then the rest of the to-do list was to breathe. That was it. One hard thing, breathe. That was all. And I really want to acknowledge for people that it is that difficult. It's that horrible. It's that unsettling. It's that perturbing. Like you're just confused all the time. You know, my daughter brilliantly explained it by saying it's all the feelings all the time, all at once. So you're just overwhelmed. Your capacity is lessened and your, you know, your input is elevated beyond your wildest imaginings. There's really brilliant water metaphors, and I really cling to those because that's what worked for me. And those early days, really, it's a tsunami. You are tumbling under the water in a tsunami. What I realized relatively early was that I wasn't actually just a piece of like detritus of like garbage (laughs) is trapped in the waves. I was a cork. So every once in a while, I would pop to the surface be able to gasp some air before another wave overtook me, right? But just that knowing that I was a cork and not a waterlogged piece of wood that was never going to get to the surface allowed me to know that there would be moments where I could just breathe and I could get, you know, I could get some air, have a little reprieve. And then yes, the overwhelm was coming again, all the emotions, the sadness, the devastation, like And I think especially for mothers, when you lose a child, it's a literal part of your body. Like, you know, cells have crossed across the umbilical cord. Like this is in reality, like in biology, this is literally a part of your body that's gone. So those early days are absolutely just about survival, that acute, acute phase. And then it kind of becomes where, you know, the tsunami turns into a tidal wave, which I think is slightly less (laughs) And over time, you know, the waves get further apart. They're still coming. I still get them, you know, two and a half years later, but they're further apart. You have more time in between to make sense because we're sense-making creatures. That's what we do, right? We, we make sense of things. We make story and we make sense. So when something like happened to us happens, it doesn't make any sense on a, like on a visceral level. It doesn't make any sense. Even though logically I could say, well, he struggled with mental illness for years you know, he'd had suicidal ideation before, whatever. I can make logical sense of it, but on a physical level, it doesn't make any sense as a mother for my child to not be here. 
just makes no sense. So as you're trying to make sense of things, you're also needing to figure out how you live, right? Because I knew very early on that I I didn't want this to destroy me, right? So many parents who lose a child just find it almost impossible to recover from. And recover isn't even the right word. They, They find it almost impossible to move to a point where they're in lesser crisis, maybe is a better way to put it. That's inelegant at best. I knew for me, I needed to be conscious and curious. So what that meant was that the conscious part was going to be, I had to allow all of the emotions, all of them. And we live in this world where we have a paradigm of good emotions and bad emotions, which needs to be deconstructed. Absolutely. All emotions are a message. They're all there to tell us something. None of them are good and bad. They're just all emotions. But the ones you experience in grief are disproportionately on, you know, the bad list if you buy into that paradigm. So you're being overwhelmed by emotions that we've so many of us been conditioned to suppress. And I think that's a big problem for people in grief, being able to accept the emotions. So I knew for me, this was not going to be a time in my life where I could be unconscious and I could just like shove all of that in a box somewhere that wasn't going to work. It was it was too overwhelming and I couldn't hold it all. So I had to be able to let it kind of flow through. And the curiosity was about that sort of sense-making piece. And really in those acute early days, the curiosity was about how do you breathe, right? When you're sobbing so hard that you can't gasp air, how do you breathe? How do you release that physiology of being in that intense emotion that is manifesting in this sobbing? You know, and it's funny, I had listened to a podcast fairly recently before Ben died that was talking about the stress cycle, bless their hearts. It's a wonderful book called burnout. And they talked about how to release the stress cycle. So I would go into that because I knew their exercise of how to do it. And so I thought, okay, so what I do is you shift from the thoughts that are bringing on, you know, the thoughts and emotions that are bringing on the sobbing, you shift to what's happening physically. What is my face doing? What is, you know, where are the tears flowing? Is my mouth open or closed? What does the rest of my body feel like? So it becomes an embodied experience. And that helps to close that stress cycle. Because if we leave those stress cycles open, that's really physically and emotionally bad for us. So I did a lot of that, a lot of, okay, I'm sobbing again. Oh, and my face is making that ugly cry face and the tears are everywhere, right? But you need those ways to disrupt the overwhelm. So that was the curiosity in the beginning, in those very early days. And then, you know, you have to have curiosity about what do you, how do you close out the accounts? What do you do with their stuff? How do you rebuild a life? How do you make sense of this? How, you know, I'd been raised as, you know, that we were supposed to help other people. And how, how do I, in this moment of distress, allow other people to help me? Because I was in no shape to help anybody. I was the hottest of hot messes. So how do I allow that help to come to me? How do I stay open to receive? There's so much to be curious about if you can hold that space to just allow it to all be okay for all of it that feels horrifying and devastating and like you have no idea what's coming next. That has to all be okay. And you just have to let it all wash. It all washes over and sometimes you're overwhelmed and sometimes it's a little ripple in the water and all of that is okay. Now, obviously, you weren't the only one affected by Ben's death. 
how did Kathleen handle it? And has Ben's death and you sharing this devastating experience perhaps brought you even closer as a family? What's interesting about that is that she grieves very differently than I do <laughs> in this circumstance. And, and I want to say, too, what's interesting about grief, and you had asked this earlier, if people grieve you know, the same way each time, if everybody grieves the same way. What I'll say about grief generally is it's a universal experience. We will all have it at some point for losses big and small. So it's universal. We, it's a universal experience that we each have a unique journey through and with. So I was really grateful in the very, very early days. I realized that she and I were not going to do this the same way. And I also realized that we weren't even actually grieving the same person. So I think it's really important to understand that, you know, my grief for my son was different than her grief for her brother. Our relationships with him were different. We were all very close with each other, but our relationships are different, right? Obviously, a mother's relationship with a child is different than a sibling relationship. And I, for many reasons, needed to talk about it. So I feel so grateful I had like two or three friends that were able to hold that space and just let me talk about it. And that was okay. She didn't want to talk about it. So that was really a challenge for me as a mother, right? Because I still want to mother her, even though she's a grown woman. <laughs> she's 25 when Ben died. You know, she's a grown up, but I still, you know, we're still drawn to mother our children. And so I had to trust that she could do it her own way and that that would be okay. And what I said to her, because I didn't, I didn't know what she was feeling or going through at any particular time. And that's not to say we never talked about it. Of course we did because we're trying to make sense of it, but she didn't want to grieve as out loud as I needed to. So what I said to her was that, you know, it's okay at times to put that grief in a little box. I mean, it probably should be a big box, put it in a box because sometimes we need a respite, right? From that overwhelm, from all the emotions, from the sadness. And we need little tastes of normalcy or of potential for normalcy, potential for what life might be next. But you have to have a relationship with that box. You can't have the box in the back corner of the attic getting all dusty, right? You need to know what's in the box. And you need to open the lid of the box every once in a while and take a look inside and allow those emotions to happen, allow everything to be okay. And then it's okay to put it back aside in, a, in the box. Like you don't have to be in it all the time. For me, I was in it all the time. That worked for me. It didn't work for her. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really important, especially when you're grieving as a family, or it happens a lot with couples who've lost a child. And there's a really high divorce rate. And the theory is that the divorce rate isn't because the child died. The divorce rate is because we hold so much judgment about how each other is grieving. So if I'm grieving out loud and I'm crying a lot and all the time, and you're grieving more privately and I don't see it, I can get into a space where I think you're not grieving at all, but that's not true. You're just grieving your way. 
So I was really conscious that I had to give her the grace to receive, to grieve the way that she wanted. And I had to receive it back from her, right? Because I was like boo-hooing and a mess all the time. And she was much more quiet about it. And I, I think that, you know, we're, we're served by the closeness of our relationship before Ben died. So we were able to talk about it. We were able to acknowledge each other's differences. We're very similar in lots of ways and we're very different in other ways. So we could embrace what was similar. We could embrace what was different. And, you know, I think in some ways it has solidified our relationship, but in other ways, our relationship was really solid going in. So you know, I, I think if I had held on to wanting her to grieve the way that I did, we would have been in trouble, right? But because I could see really early on, and I can't even remember what I had read because I just read all kinds of snippets of things because I still can't really sit down and read a dense book. But I had read somewhere about, you know, this difference of relationships and really acknowledging that different relationship. And even if it's, you know, when my parents, when each of my parents died, my brothers and I grieved very differently. But our relationship, even with them, so even when the name of it is a you know a parent-child relationship, the name is the same, your relationship with each other isn't the same. So you're grieving something really different. Your loss is really different. You know, she lost the sibling that was supposed to be there for her after I died. So that's a whole layer of loss that I don't have, that I just needed to let be okay, that she was going to experience that different ways. And we talked a lot about you know, how he was going to miss significant things in her life. And so how did we make sure he was there? Like, how did we honor him at her wedding, for example? So she's lost her, you know, I don't even know what you would have called him, groomsman of honor, you know, <laughs> who was going to plan the whole thing and design the whole thing and, you know, help pick the dress, right? That's, you know, who he was in our lives. And she lost that. So how do we, when that time comes, have him there and acknowledge that he's missing? So you know, we had all those kinds of conversations and about how we wanted to carry him with us. You know, there's no leaving behind. There's no moving on. You know, some of the language around grief is so strange that, you know, full circle back to that conversation we were having about languaging, you know, all of that sense that we should move on and we should get through it all implies that somehow we're going to leave our person behind. And so for me, you know, we became very clear that we were moving forward with you know, there were always going to be ways for us to presence Ben in our lives and remember him and, you know, think about what he would have thought about a situation or, you know, what he would have said about it or, you know, what sassy comment he would have made or what, you know, exasperated look would have been on his face. So that was really a conscious decision that we made was, no, this is moving forward with, we're not, we're not leaving anybody behind. Circling back to the topic of language that you just mentioned again. Now, what do you think are the right words that people should be using when speaking to somebody who's just experienced loss and who is grieving? There are very mixed messages as to what one should say, what one shouldn't say. What is your opinion on that? The languaging and the knowing what to say is really, really complicated. And I think it's the spot where we get the most tangled up. And what I hear from people, you know, when I run a workshop or I do a survey is that the reason they don't know what to say is mainly out of fear. We have a lot of fear about saying the wrong thing. And so sometimes that means that we're paralyzed into saying nothing. So what I kind of say, you know, to put it in a, in a kind of sassy light way 
is if you heard your Aunt Mildred say it to your mother at your grandmother's funeral, you probably shouldn't say it. Okay. So all those old platitudes and cliches, we have outgrown them. They don't serve anymore. And some of them are actually actively harmful. And I know, you know, when we're trying to say something to someone who's experienced a loss recently, none of us want to do any harm, right? We want to say something comforting. We want to say something that acknowledges what's happened. I'm a big fan of I'm so sorry, not from a pity perspective, but from an empathy perspective. Like we have all experienced losses, big and small. And I think, you know, grief applies to all kinds of losses. It's not just the loss of a person. Where grief happens, it happens in all kinds of losses. So we've all experienced losses. We all have a sense of what that feels like. And we can feel sorry for someone from a place of, oh, like that's just so terrible. And I think it's okay to say that. I think it's okay to say what's true for you too. It's horrible. People who said to me, oh my gosh, that is so horrible. That was a release for me because it is, it was, it is. And for someone to acknowledge that is beautiful. You're not, I'm, I know it's horrible. I know he died. I remember that every moment of every day. So you're not going to remind me, which is the other fear I hear from people. They don't want to remind someone the person is gone. When we're talking about supporting someone over the longer term, you're not reminding them. In those early days, I really, you know, the most powerful thing that you can do is speak vulnerably from your heart in your own words. So if you read it in a greeting card, that's that's probably not going to resonate with the person, right? One of the exercises I do in my workshops is we we do a whole journaling exercise around exactly this, like what what could you say? Because it's very individual. And so I would love to be able to say, oh, yes, here's the magic sentence you can say to every griever and it's going to give them comfort. I I wish, I wish in the magical world (laughs) where I, you know, get control, that's how it works. In the real world, unfortunately, it's not. It's more complicated than that because grief is complicated. So when I do that exercise with people, they come up with the most beautiful sentences, a sentence or two that they could say to someone. That's uniquely theirs, right? I had one woman participant who said something like, and I'll get it wrong because they're her words, but something like, you know, I, I don't know what you're going through, but I know that I love you. And however long this takes, I'm here to walk this journey beside you. If you were able to tell Ben something right now in 2023, if you can send him a message, what would you say to him? I would say to him, I love you. And I know that you know that. And I know that you know that I know that you love us and you love me. I would say to him, it's okay. We're okay. I would, I mean, you know, I talk to him all the time. (laughs) I would say if he was here though, oh my gosh, we would have a rich conversation about the last two and a half years. I would say he's still with us. I would say I understand. And I I would say, you know, that I'm in so many ways, I'm grateful he's not suffering anymore because I know he suffered and none of us want our loved one to suffer. You mentioned to me before that 
One thing you had to learn through this entire journey was to accept the ups, downs, and sideways of grief. We've talked a lot about the downs and the sideways and the confusion, but what could possibly have been the ups of this experience? What is something that you learned or experienced through all of this? Perhaps kindness from other people or other events that brought back beauty during a very dark time? I think that grievers struggle with the idea that there's beauty and there's an upside because we've been taught and told that grief is this terrible thing that you should get over as quickly as possible. For me, I think grief is this thing that I'm going to have with me the rest of my life. It's this visitor that I never invited (laughs) that's here. And so I need to learn to live with it. And that means that then I have to be open to there being beauty in grief. Where the beauty shows up for me is in the amazing relationships that I have with the small but mighty (laughs) group of people that was able to support me and still support me. It's in my enhanced sense of empathy and my ability to really you know, hold so much, like I have so much more capacity to hold hard things and to be able to be there for people in those hard things and just hold the space. None of us need fixing, right? And and we're so enculturated to show up and want to help help somebody. We want to help them. We want to fix them. We want to make it better. You can't do any of that in grief. And I was an A-plus student at show up, help somebody, fix it, make it better. I was excellent at that. <laughs> so I've had to develop the capacities for my, for my own survival to be able to not need to fix it because I can't fix this. I can't bring Ben back. That's the only thing really that would fix it. And that's not possible. So then it has to become about how do you then in this new reality, allow for the pain and the beauty to coexist, allow for the both and of everything. And I want to be really clear that that doesn't happen in the acute stage, for sure, those acute early days where you're in the tsunami and you think you're a piece of driftwood. It can start to happen in early grief. And I I leave that up to people to define how long that is. There's no timeline. There's no magical at six months, you should be here at a year or something magical is going to happen. All of that timeline stuff is not true and can be actively harmful. And for many people, actually, the second year is worse because of it, because we're told the firsts are going to be hard, right? The first birthday of them, of you, the first holidays, the first Mother's Day, heaven help us from Mother's Day, the first Christmas, all of those things, we're told the first ones are going to be hard. But then we expect because we're told the firsts are going to be hard that by the second, something magical is supposed to have happened. And of course, it hasn't. So sometimes the second year is even worse for people, but the beauty comes from being able to hold what happened to me and share it with other people in a way that helps them if something similar happens, just to understand that it's going to be horrible. It's going to be, you know, as horrifying as you imagine. It's absolutely as bad as you think. And there's also beauty there. You know, for me, you know, there's beauty in today being a beautiful sunny day and the daffodils are, I, hey, I'm sorry for the rest of the North America that's still in winter. We have daffodils and almost tulips here. 
you know, spring is here. The blossoms are coming. The birds are back. There's so much beauty. If you can hook into the cycles of nature, if you can get outside in the way people show up for you in ways you never imagined would be possible. And that balances and, you know, makes more bearable for me, all of the things that are still unspeakably hard. I know that you have decided to use your own grief experience and become a grief educator to help others. Tell us about that very important work. And is that perhaps part of Ben's legacy in your life now? So I knew very early on, I took to writing as a way to just get the swirling thoughts out of my head and to, as part of that sense-making process that we were talking about before, there was something about writing that helped me to kind of make sense of things. And I started out sharing things on Facebook to my you know, friends and family list there and got such positive feedback from people that it was really, you know, my ability to be open about it, which for me was a survival thing that wasn't a magnanimous gesture, right? This was just pure survival. I had to get some of the spin out of my head. But my ability to do that was really helping them to understand grief better, to understand maybe how they could support someone who's grieving. And I had just before Ben died, finished my training as a transformational women-centered coach and had a completely different path of coaching in mind that I was about to launch. And so, of course, when he died, that all blew up as everything else did. And I really saw that, you know, that the training and, and experience that I had in that system of approaching the world, of living your life, of, you know, mindsets and you know, changing your story really was so applicable to this area of grief and really had been a huge part of how I had been able to navigate it the way that I did, where I was able to kind of let it all just be horrifying and okay. So yeah, I, I ended up completing another session of coaching training with the same organization and my uh, workshop leader training with them as well. And then I did a grief educator course on top of that. And because I really wanted a broader experience, a broader um, perspective that would help me to help people who were grieving in such different ways than I did, because I really think the, the thing that helps grievers the most is having permission to find their own way and support to find their own way because each time is different. You know, my grief for Ben, you know, is different than my grief for my dad, different than my grief for my mom, my grandparents, aunts and uncles, colleagues and friends. Every time is different. So while you can use some of those tools that you developed the last time, it's not going to be exactly the same. So each time you have to kind of chart this unique path. And that permission to do it your own way, I think is really important. And I also wanted to be able to speak more to, you know, this idea, which you hear, I hear so often, if you're in any kind of grief forum, people talk about it all the time, how grief changes your address book. And people who you thought were, you know, as we kind of glibly say, you're ride or die, right? People who you thought were your lifelong friends that would be there for you, you know, in the worst of times, many, many, many of them disappear. So out of my inner circle, there's maybe, maybe four people left of my sort of, you know, your closest circle and then your next one. Like, it's like when you're at the bar and you've been dancing all night and then they turn the lights on and you realize how dingy it really is and how it's it wasn't all that great, right? And everyone scatters. It's that, everybody scatters from your life. 
So what I became really curious about was why was that? And so besides working with individual grievers to help them find their own path, I became really curious about how we could work together to find better ways to support each other. So I can bring my grief experience and the grief experiences I'm hearing about from other people and help us as a collective learn better how we can show up for each other. And there's some very specific things you can do, you know, right back to that idea of like, what do you say? Well, something from you that's heart centered, that's individual, that's appropriate for the person you're talking to. So those kinds of skills, and and they are skills. These are things we need to learn because we haven't been taught them, right? We've been so grief phobic and grief illiterate that nobody's talking about it, but we hold a whole bunch of judgment, which is like a super unhealthy relationship we have with this experience, right? We don't talk about it, but you're supposed to do it a certain way that no one's talked about, but we're going to judge you because no matter how you do it, you're doing it wrong. So if we can break all of that down, and really start to normalize grief as a part of our expected experience, you know, then companies would have a policy, right? Your company should have a grief policy. If you have a sick day policy, you should have a grief policy. There should be protocols that as a griever, you could come to your boss or your supervisor and say, hey, you know, I'm really experiencing grief right now. You shouldn't need to have to share the whole entire story. And I need to access, you know, A, B, and C. It should just be part of how we live. Because it's here for all of us. And I think especially right now, the level of collective grief we're all holding from our losses through COVID, so our losses of people, our losses of experiences, our losses of jobs, our losses of businesses, our losses of our sense of security and normalcy and, you know, life trajectory, (laughs) you know, all of that got uprooted. And then we continue to see unprecedented levels of weather things and, you know, environmental things and, you know, violence and, you know, pain and loss. And, you know, we're so connected globally now because of the internet and social media. We don't just see what's happening around the world on the six o'clock news. Like when I was a kid, you turn the news on at six o'clock, you got your hour, hour long piece of what's happening around the world and you went back to your life. We see it all the time now, which means we're all carrying the stress and the grief and loss of all of these things all the time, which I think if we can step into this really allows us to be so much more wonderfully, beautifully connected to each other in this moment where we feel so disconnected and so siloed off. And so, you know, that we're, you know, chasms are between us that we don't know how to bridge these divides. So that's really become my sort of cathedral project, right? That won't be done in my lifetime. But everything I can do to talk about it, to normalize it, to help people help each other and help businesses support their workers or their customers, you know, that's what's going to help us to start to bring this into our mainstream. And there seems to be a shift in our, our willingness to have these difficult conversations, which is brilliant then we just need to have them and we need to help each other facilitate them. And we need to create spaces where it's okay to be imperfect and messy and brilliant and, you know, vulnerable and honest and say, you know, I had, I had one beautiful experience with a coworker and we'd been like coffee room 
acquaintances at work, not friends outside of work, but great conversations in the coffee room. So about the three month mark, I had a conversation with a coworker that was so helpful. And it is such a great example of this idea of wanting to come vulnerable and messy and that that's okay. So I hadn't talked to her since Ben had died and she came up to me and she said, Oh, I I owe you an apology. And I, and I said, well, why? And she said, you know, I feel so terrible, but I just didn't know what to say. And I was so, her kids were around the same age as mine. And she said, it it just hit, hit so close to home to me with my own kids that I just couldn't even, I just couldn't even say anything. And so I, I need to admit to you that when I saw you, I wouldn't make eye contact. I would avert my gaze and I would avoid you. I would back away so that I didn't run into you. And I feel so terrible about that. And I said to her, you know, thank you. Like, that's a huge gift to come and be that open and that honest and that vulnerable. And I said, you know, I totally understand. Like, I get it for my friends who have kids around the same age. That's a big part of that circle that disappeared, right? Because it hits so close to home that for whatever myriad of reasons, they couldn't show up for me. And this coworker was so beautiful in saying that. And and what was lovely about it for me was that it reminded me that if she had that experience, other people had that experience where no matter how much they wanted to come and say something and be supportive and, you know, say the right thing to help make it better, right? All those ridiculous things that we think exist and don't, that if she had that experience that other people had as well. And so it allowed me to really accept that there were people for whom this was simply too close to home and they couldn't, they couldn't get past that to do something for me. And that that was okay, right? I had people who could show up for me brilliantly. Thank you. I'm so, so grateful. But that other people were having this kind of experience where it was so devastating for them to get so close to it, almost like it was somehow going to be contagious, which I know we all know isn't true. But sometimes we feel like if we get too close to it it, and acknowledge it, that it might happen to us. We know that's not how the world works, but we're so locked in this fear cycle around grief that it's going to take that kind of level of, this is a coffee room, chit chat at work person, acquaintance, right? Who was able to come and share so openly what was real for her and also say to me, and I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry that happened. I'm so sorry. I haven't been able to say anything you know, you must miss him terribly, whatever it was. She said beautiful words that are her words. So I can't repeat them because they were her words. And it was a real gift. And I feel like the more places and spaces and opportunities we have for that kind of honest conversation about how scared we are, about how much we want so much to do the right thing, that if we're not sure what the right thing is, we choose to like we opt for doing nothing because we don't want to do harm. So in our in our desire to not do harm, we end up not doing anything. And if we can talk about that ahead of time, so you're not in that emotion of, oh my gosh, that hits so close to home. What if that was my family? And have a, a dis a slightly distanced conversation. If we can zoom out a little bit, then we can create space for those conversations and we can build our toolbox so that when it does happen. Because the people around us are going to experience grief and loss for losses big and small. It's a given. We know that to be true. So 
but we don't develop the skills for it. Anything else we're sure is going to happen in our life, we do skills for. We learn how to drive a car. We learn how to clean a kitchen. We learn how to cook. All the things we need in our day-to-day lives, we learn how to do them. We don't learn how to show up for grief. So if we can open up spaces to have those conversations and start to make it more normal and start to acknowledge that we're all collectively in this mess together and we all collectively don't have the skills. So we need to learn them. So that absolutely is part of Ben's legacy, 100%. For anyone out there who might be interested in learning more about this or perhaps has children who they would like to educate or has a family member that they would like to educate, what resources can you recommend and how can they perhaps even get in touch with you to learn more about the work that you're doing and how you could possibly help them if they are confronted with grief? So I have one resource that I love the most, which is a really wonderful book about grief called Tear Soup. And I can never remember the author's names, but I know it's on Amazon because that's where I get it from. It's a kid's book, which makes it really great for people, especially in those acute early days. For me, I couldn't read very much. And I'm a big reader. I read voraciously all the time. And I couldn't make sense of words on the page very well. So it's great because it's a kid's book. So it's not a lot of text. So it's really awesome if you're supporting a child who's grieving because it explains it really beautifully. And it's great for adults who are grieving as well. Or for people who've lost, like one of my uncles died, oh gosh, almost two years ago now. And he left grandchildren, right? So it's nice. It was a a gift that I sent them to say like, this will serve all the generations, right? Because they could read it together. And it's just a beautiful story of the way people grieve differently and the way that grief can show up. The other one that I really love that I've been reading most recently is called Grief is Love. And that's by Marissa Renee Lee. And the biggest takeaway for me from that book, which has just resonated so much for me, is she has a whole paragraph or a whole chapter about permission and that idea of us not really having permission to grieve and needing to give it to ourselves because culturally we don't really give it to each other anymore. And that sense of having permission was really, really impactful for me. And it's a it's a relatively lighter read. I still struggle with really dense uh, nonfiction, especially. So if you're someone who's having that symptom of grief, then that's uh, that's a good place to go as well. There are lots of grief books. What I suggest to people is, you know, head to your bookstore, look on Amazon because it's easy to search there. Even if you then go buy it at an independent bookstore, if you're not an Amazon uh, supporter. And what I do is I read the first few pages and I know almost instantly if it's going to resonate for me. Because our journeys are all so unique, then I'm so grateful that there's all kinds of different books about grief. There's a really great one by Megan Devine called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. That's really helpful in those early days if you can manage um, a book in those early days, because it talks a lot about how just really crappy the whole thing is, which is helpful because nobody tells us that. So then you feel alone and isolated and like you're losing your mind. So that's another great resource as well. Um, If people want to find me, the easiest way is through my website, which is alivedexperience.com. That's where my blog posts show up and where I post about workshops that I have upcoming. And there's also links there to all my social media feeds. So that's the easiest place to find them because searching for them amongst the algorithm is not always as easy as we would like it to be. So that's the best place to find me. And yeah, there's 
ways to contact me there. You can sign up for the newsletter. All of those things are available on the website. I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your openness, for sharing when many turn silent, for opening a door to this conversation about grief. If our listeners have a question for you, would you consider coming back and talking to me again? Absolutely. Yes. Any questions? I mean, if you want to keep a list and then we'll do a question and answer session, that would be great. You know, my mission now in life is to open this conversation. So if it's too hard to have around the dinner table, which for the vast majority of us, it still is, then yes, fire us your questions. I would love to answer them. And I just want to acknowledge you for your your care in putting this episode together about this really difficult topic that we're not uh, used to talking about and we don't know how to talk about it. So your ability to just come with thoughtful, interesting questions to facilitate this conversation, I'm so appreciative for. Thank you so much for having me. Friends, thank you for the time you've given me and my guest Suzanne today. I hope that this impactful story was able to expand your horizons about grief and loss. To learn more about Suzanne's important work as a grief educator or to get in touch with her, please check out alivedexperience.com. That's alivedexperience.com. I learned a lot myself during this conversation, especially about the crucial role our language plays in how we try to support and assist those enduring unspeakable losses. You know, the mission of my podcast has always been to build a community of kind, caring, and loving individuals always willing to come together and support one another, either by raising awareness, sharing experiences and stories, or simply by keeping an open mind and open ears. I feel honored that there are so many people out there willing to become a part of Thoughtvolution and our incredible little group of people striving to make a difference. If you want to go from listener to being an active participant of this podcast, you can do so in a number of ways. You may want to send questions that our guests can answer in a follow-up interview. Or you might be interested in becoming a guest yourself. I will never grow tired of hearing and sharing people's stories. Please don't ever think that you have nothing to say. Your journey matters just as much as the journeys of Suzanne, Deb, Donnie, Aaron, Haley, Jennifer, Dustin, Don, Eric, Neriman, Anna, Olga, and all the others that are yet to come contact us. You can do so via our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, that is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, where you can also find links to our Apple podcast page, our Spotify, our Amazon music profile, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or TikTok. There's also our intake form, a merch store that supports the work of this channel in case you're looking for some of the coolest hoodies, t-shirts, etc. Thoughtvolutionpodcast.com definitely has it all. You may also call us at 864-501-5033, that is 864-501-5033, and leave us a voicemail message. Every message we receive will be answered, so please reach out and get in touch with us. If you are listening on YouTube, or Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, or Amazon, please take a moment to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and write a comment or review. It really helps with the algorithm. The beauty of this world is that we get to inhabit it together. We get to share everything that is beautiful, just as much as we should be willing to share the heavy moments and excruciating stuff as well. 
Whenever you move to a new house or apartment, you probably wouldn't dare trying to carry that 200-pound couch or that fragile flat-screen TV by yourself, right? You would count on somebody to help you with that. Whether it's a stranger working for a moving company, your neighbor or your friend. So let's be that stranger, neighbor or friend. Times of grief can be so frustrating, lonely and isolating. Instead of turning away because we are unsure what to do to help, let's get educated, let's learn together and become the support system a griever really needs. I will see y'all next week and remember to always be kind to each other. Love y'all.